so yeah, well, welcome to our roundtable discussion, um, focused on the different journeys into leadership uh, people take, um, how the context of leadership has changed over the last year or so, um, what leadership in international schools could um, and perhaps should look like uh, post-COVID, um, sort of going, going forward into this sort of new new world we see ourselves in. Um, so yeah, if any attendees um, have any questions at all um, over the next sort of uh, 30 odd minutes during the discussion, um, do feel free to put it in the Q&A chat. Um, so not the chat box, the, the Q&A, um, that'd be great. Um, and all raise your hand at the end um, if you have any questions and, and we'll try and get to those um, if we have some time at the end. So yeah, with that, um, I'm firstly delighted uh, to welcome Matt Hall, um, the director of Making Stuff Better. Uh, Making Stuff Better offers leadership coaching for international school leaders. Also joined by Marianne Young-McDonald, who is Group Head of Teacher Professional Learning at International Schools Partnership Limited. Uh, Dan McHugh is Secondary Head Teacher at Alain Academy in the UAE. Uh, and Indajit Dehal is the Director of Quality and Professional Development at Nord Anglia Education. So yeah, welcome to yours. Great to, great to have you on the, on the panel. Thank you for joining. Great, and, and with that, my, my first question um, to the panel, um, can you tell me about each of your journeys into your leadership positions? Um, Indigid, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. And uh, my journey probably slightly tedious. So I thought I'd talk about the journey in terms of mindset. Um, so I was one of those people who was promoted very, very young because I was good at what I did. So I ended up in a, in a senior, leadership, senior leadership position in my mid to, to late 20s, uh, firstly local government, then as a chief exec of an NGO. And, and I continued that being good at what I did in terms of my approach to leadership. Um, so I, I didn't pay much regard to the organization or the team around me. And it was some painful conversations and ill health uh, which got me to a point where uh, I realized that, you know, being a, a strong personal performer isn't what leadership's about. And it was a particularly frank conversation with a friend of mine, Cole Frank, who came to work with us, who said, you know, you don't engage your team. You don't make the most of the people around you. And it was, it was that one conversation tied in with everything else that was happening that I realized that leadership was about creating the conditions that enable others to deliver. So how do I get the best out of other people rather than just delivering myself? Uh, and it sounds like a fairly mundane moment uh, and one that lots of people have been through. But for me, that psychological shift changed my practice. And I now, as a leader, I think my strongest point is that I build really strong teams. I engage people and I create those conditions which enable them to deliver really effectively. So that, that's really been my leadership journey in a nutshell. Fantastic. Uh, Marianne, what about yourself? Hi, everyone. Um, so I will have to say that mine began first when I taught in International School Manila back in 2001. So you can tell my age a little bit there. Um, I'm from Canada, born and raised in Malaysia. So I moved to the Philippines, uh, you know, after five years of teaching in public system here in Canada. And my second year working in the International School Manila, I was appointed the middle school math program leader. To be honest, at that time, as Simon Sinek would say it, people put people in leadership roles, but then no training. So I can safe, I safe to say that I probably was not very good at the leadership thing. 
However, you know, I got another shot at um, leadership role in Chaco International School, which is uh, International School Services uh, flagship school in China. And there the director said, Marianne, you need to take some leadership courses. So I went to PTC, which is the principal training center. And that's where, you know, my eyes open, my mind open, just learning from other educators, I realized how much I need to learn more. So I went on to do my master's in educational leadership and then my doctorate in educational leadership with USC as well. And, you know, since then I've been in um, vice principal role in the United World College of Southeast Asia in Singapore, East Campus, you know, uh, director of learning K-12 in Anglo-American School of Sofia in Bulgaria. And then I was the founding head of school here in, a, uh, in Ontario, Canada for a private school before joining ISP in January of this year. So it's been 10 months, good journey. Um, I would say that the one thing I really noticed about leadership and my journey were the many, many mentors and coaches that I had throughout the way, people supporting me. So for those of you who are listening, remember the small little gesture of saying, you know what, you should try this. How about this? Just modeling the learning, supporting and encouraging them goes a long ways. And I wouldn't have begun my journey without these important people in my life. And I continue to have these mentors and coaches. And it's so important. And I think it's, it's something that we will talk about later, later as well. So in short, that's my journey. And I, uh, maybe Dan can go next. Please, Dan. Thanks. I, I feel like I've been uh, dropped somewhat in the deep end following that. And, uh, um, but uh, hello, everyone. Um, let's talk about my leadership journey. Um, I mean, I've always been interested in leadership. I was fortunate enough to, to be elected as a student leader and really just embrace that challenge because leadership is a challenge. Um, every day, every interaction, there are challenges that, that come your way. And um, it's really something that I've, I've, I've taken with me to, to embrace that challenge. So I've got a, a slightly unconventional approach into school leadership. I uh, worked in the corporate world for a decade, including five years owning my own business and then moved into education after. And um, I think partly because of those leadership traits and, and, and skills and experiences that, that I had developed, um, have, have fast-tracked reasonably quickly through into a headship. But the one thing that I would say I've learned along the way is that, in my experience, 80% of the leadership, 90% of the leadership in the corporate world overlaps with the school leadership world that I'm now in. And, and that's that you need to walk the talk. Um, it's no good sitting in your uh, office, in your metaphorical ivory tower and, and expect others to do what you, what you cannot do. So for that reason, I feel as a school leader, it's important I still uh, keep um, a class of my own and I still teach and get into the classroom and work at that coal face. Uh, and I also make sure that if I'm expecting my staff to do things, uh, I've already done it or I'm doing it alongside them. And I think it's those little things that you do as a leader um, that are transferable regardless of the, of the industry or the area that you work in. Over to you, Matt. Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I re resonate everything that um, the panelists have said so far. I mean, I, my, my, my first memory, when you asked this question earlier, my first memory of being a leader was being made captain of the under 12 rugby team. And um, that's just some real parallels with what industry said. I was really good at it. I genuinely was. Um, but I was really good at it because 
I was the only one who wanted to do it. And I just naturally kind of spent the whole time thinking about myself and how good I was. Um, and I can really remember this massive fall from grace about four or five years later when no longer were we under 12s, we were more like under 18s. And the style I was using with the bunch of people that had become my friends by then just wasn't suitable anymore. Um, and they didn't want to be told what to do um, by me. Um, and that that kind of very early understanding of um, if you haven't got your people with you, you're not a leader at all. If it's not about creating the conditions that allow them to thrive, then then, then what are you doing? I, I, I got fairly early on, I think, um, and I, but it never fails me how often I still forget that from time to time. And I default perhaps too readily to kind of the superhero leadership of I need to, to fix everything. Um, remembering that served me well. I did senior leadership roles in some challenging schools in the UK and then um, in the Middle East. Um, and now my I have this kind of really privileged role where our company coaches over 200 school leaders around the world. And my job in that is making sure that the coaches that we deploy have got everything they need to do their job um, to the best of their ability. And it gives us this really unique insight. But I, I, I think the principle is the same, whether you're managing a team of kind of coaches around the world or you're managing a bunch of spotty 11 year olds that are trying to get a rugby ball across the try line. Um, it's all about creating the conditions conditions for growth and and supporting people to do it because you can't can't teach all the lessons yourself um you can't do all the coaching yourself and you definitely can't score the tries yourself fantastic some really very different journeys there into leadership really really interesting um and, and for your different perspectives can you tell me a little bit about some of your key learnings both positive and negative um about different leadership approaches that you've learned along the way marianne would you like to go first Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, um, I really think about a style or leadership style or approaches because you use different styles and approaches in different contexts. You use different things for different situations and time as well in your phase of your leadership, right? So what I do focus is really Vivian Robinson's research and that is on the five dimension of student-centered leadership. So there's five kind of leadership activities in schools that are happening. So the first one is establishing goals and expectations. Two is resourcing strategically. Three is ensuring quality and, uh, of teaching. So the performance evaluation or appraisals. And then four, leading teacher learning and development. And finally, the fifth one, ensuring order and safety in school. So these are the five things that she researched on. And interestingly, the number one uh, highest impact, well, two, I would say, would be ensuring quality of teaching. And then the second one is leading teacher learning and development. And if you look at her research, she talks about teacher professional learning, on-the-job professional learning in schools have double the positive impact of ensuring quality of teaching. So this is the instructional leadership where you go in and you observe and planning and all that. So for me then, you know, one of my key learnings over the last few years would be to focus on teacher development in schools and not through workshops necessarily a professional development, but really on the job professional learning, conducting learning inquiries you know, having these learning conversations, coaching conversations, all these things are meaningful and they create self-directedness in teachers. You know, they're finding learning improvement areas that they can improve. And so for me, that has the highest impact. And that would be really standing up for me for the last five years. And that's my biggest focus. And with ISP as well right now is our biggest focus, you know, teacher professional learning 
on the job, supported by their mentors and their coaches. Fantastic. Matt, what, Matt, what about yourself? Um, yeah, and the styles is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's so variable dependent on context and what, you know, as I definitely learned, what works in one context won't in the other. And, you know, we've certainly seen in the last 18 months or two years that people have had to really explore other a range of styles for the for the circumstances, particularly the crisis management stages that so many schools have been in. Um, the, the one, I suppose the one similar to Marianne, the, the one model, if you like, that always shines out to me um, is one is the, is the kind of modeling monitoring dialogue. And whenever I look at someone's leadership practice and they may be struggling with an issue or, a, or an area that then something's not quite working, coming back to those kind of th that Venn diagram of, are you modeling? Dan talked about it earlier, being in the classroom. Are you, are you modeling the expectations you're looking for? Um, that might be in teaching practice, as Marianne describes, or it might be in the leadership, the, the what you value as a leader and the way you behave as a leader. Are you modeling the behaviors you expect to see? Um, are you, have you got a system for monitoring because you can't check it all yourself? Um, is there some something systematic for monitoring quality? Um, and often, often school leaders are really good at that, those uh, one of one of those two or two of the three. Um, but when you throw in the third, you really see a change, which is the dialogue to what extent, what's the quality of the conversations happening in your school and in your department um, and in your in your in your classrooms? Um, to what extent are you in dialogue with the people you lead? Um, and I always think it's really interesting when we talk to kind of middle leaders about moving into leadership. I always think that the one of the biggest kind of hidden tricks in teacher development and leadership development in schools is that the skills of really good leadership are the same as really good teaching. Like if you think of modeling, monitoring and dialogue, you'd, you'd want your teachers to be doing that all the time in the classroom. You're just taking the same skills and using it with adults who have a range of needs and approaches and all the rest of it. Um, and sometimes people who are developing as leaders in school see leadership as this kind of mysterious um, thing that they don't have the skills for. But I'm always reminding them that they're, they're brilliant leaders. They're leading groups of 30 kids um, all day, every day. Um, it's just changing it, changing the context slightly really interesting actually um dan dan what about yourself well i mean i'm my biggest challenge here is being succinct i think because it's it's just a you know a, a minefield in terms of the goods and the bads that you see uh, in practice that i've experienced that others that i know in the, the teaching profession have experienced and of course you know, it isn't just teaching either. I've, I've experienced it in the corporate world as well. Some, some pretty bad management practices, but also um, when I think about some of the leadership attributes that I want to demonstrate, I think back to some of the absolutely phenomenal uh, leaders that I had the privilege of working with in, in the software industry. And um, again, resonates a lot with what people have said about you know, walking the, the talk, but also focusing on what's important. So now, what, what are we here to do? What's our core purpose? And as a school, your core purpose is, number one, keeping children safe, and number two, uh, making sure that the education experience that they have is as good as possible. And really, as much as you can, that should be the focus as a, as a leader. So I think uh, as an uh, emerging school leader, um, I felt I had a lot of the soft skills, but I was struggling a little bit with, you know, finding that fit and, and purpose. And I would say that the, the first book that really struck a chord with me was, was a book called Leverage Leadership by Paul Van Brick Santoyo. And 
Now, what he spoke about is, you know, your, your top leaders focus on the instruction. That's where they dedicate their time and they, they block time into their diaries and they place that as the most important thing. And I think that's something that I aspire to be. And I find it a challenge sometimes. I mean, just today, uh, we have had PCR testing in school. These are the types of things that come your way and uh, drain your, your time. And it's very difficult to, to make sure that you're focusing on that core purpose of supporting teachers in terms of their development uh, and quality assuring what it is that they do. Um, but I would say that it's just about planning ahead as much as possible and making sure that that time that you have as a school leader is dedicated to what's most important. And in a school, that's about safeguarding and that's about teaching and learning. So um, for me, the, the, the school leaders who do well are the ones who really do place as much focus as they can on those two things. Yeah, I don't want to repeat the things that other people have said, which I agree with completely. Um, a bit like others, I've worked in a range of sectors. I've worked in the NGO sector, local government, central government, private sector, schools, etc. Um, and I have one model which has helped me through all of that. And it helps me to look at others' leadership. And a number of you will probably have heard of it. It's the Fed model, Steve Radcliffe's Fed model, which is future, engage, deliver. And it works for me because it kind of sums up everything else i can fit all of the other approaches into it so future is the idea that you have a strategy you have a vision preferably co-created that people buy into engage is that you build relationships and you take people with you and and that i have to say throughout my career so for example when i was a senior civil servant in the department for education some incredibly bright brains uh, including amongst cabinet ministers um but so little emphasis putting on taking people with you so it's great being really clever and being able to unpick a, a difficult system issue but how do you take people with you to be able to deliver it so engage incredibly important then deliver and the idea of of a leader in terms of deliver is how do you deliver through others because that's essentially what you're doing uh, the further you go up the chain and the more teams you have working with you it's about how you deliver through them so that future engage deliver and the engage has all the stuff about emotional intelligence and you know how you build relationships which which i think are big enough to get the job done which is at the heart of every, everything we do as leaders that's me Brilliant. And, and from a, both a coaching and a leadership perspective, um, how have you all had to adapt your strategies and approaches sort of over the last year or so? Um, and, and of those learnings, what, what do you think you will want to take forward and, and, and develop more of um, going forward into the future? Who would like to say that one? I don't mind starting because it kind of builds on yeah. my on my previous answer. And I, I, I'll be just very quick. Um, but if I continue on on the Fed model, that the shift that 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 we have made, and I've seen lots of people make, is to a greater focus on engage, and that's particularly been because of issues around well-being for staff and for students over the last eighteen you know to twenty-four months. Um, so just a basic example in that rush when the pandemic first struck. You know, the question everywhere was, how do we get content online very, very quickly? How do we provide asynchronous lessons? How do we maintain, you know, bums on seats and, and prevent parents taking 
uh, you know, their students out of school. And there was such pressure placed on people that we suddenly realized that, you know, teachers were wilting under all the pressure of virtual learning, hybrid learning, face-to-face, -face, keeping parents happy. So that shift, uh, which I'm hoping has been permanent, is the importance of mental health, health and well-being of staff and students. And that's just as important as the academic outcomes for students or the, the business outcomes for the organisation as a whole. And in fact, you, know, you can't deliver, well, you can't deliver one without the other, but it, it's a very short-term approach. Thank you. I think I take a bit of a philosophical response to the, the question. Um, and there's this lovely quote I always come back to it. I never know who it's, it's attributed to, but it's um, travel, traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. By walking, you make the path. Um, and, and I think why that resonates with me, both in terms of my own role in our organization and, and the organizations we work with is, is the, um, this may sound perverse, but potentially the freeing um, components of what has happened over the last two years. And the, the, the rule book has been slightly thrown out. The, um, the conventions have changed. And I think there's something really exciting in the opportunity um, it's certainly coming up in a lot of the conversations I'm having with leaders is that you, there's a choice here of either being fearful and locking down and being overly cautious, which obviously you need to do in terms of protecting your staff and protecting your children. But there's also this huge opportunities. The kind of world is reorganizing itself. Um, and if you can choose to see that the path is no longer there, that actually just by walking, by taking action and doing something, you create the path. Um, then I think there's a, we're at this really exciting period potentially in, in leadership in all guises, but, but particularly in international schools who are so often pioneers in kind of the way in which um, we educate young people with a global perspective. Um, there's a real, you know, we, we, we are still working out where we are and what, and what we're doing. Um, and, and I see leaders either choosing to be fearful of that or choosing to kind of see that as an opportunity and actually say, let's, let's start walking a different path. It's not done very easily. Um, it's very easy to conform with what others are doing or conforming with what's gone before um, but I think my my reflections of of what I've seen in, in terms of people who are responding COVID in a particular way is, is that way and I, and I think I find that inspiring and we're trying to do that as an organization as well as think well you know what what's this going to look like in a year what's it going to look like in three years and, and what role do we want to play um, in that rather than kind of defaulting to let's just hunker down till it's over. I do, I must say, though, I do share that point of view of, you know, looking at the glass half full, because there were a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, I opened a school and a lockdown happened. So there's so much learning in doing that. And what's really interesting for me is that, yes, there were a lot of challenges, but usually comes the learning from the challenges. And I'm totally applying it right now in my new role with International Schools Partnership. You know, think of all the things that you could never do before, easily offering professional learning for your teachers virtually. And now you've understood how the classroom teaching students using technology, like using tools, you do flip learning, asynchronous, synchronous learning. So you do all the front loading before you start the webinar and they come to the webinar and they have all this discussion. And then what's really great is now they can have the cross, well, we have 52 schools plus, right? So our teachers, our middle leaders actually, because it's connected to what I shared at the beginning, you know, focusing on on-the-job professional learning for teachers 
And what we're focusing on are our middle leaders supporting and having those conversations. So we're training our middle leaders, right? But we wouldn't have even thought about that you know, pre-pandemic, but now we have. We have a program to train hundreds of middle leaders in a short period of time because it's all done virtually. And you know, so far our um, responses, our training evaluations have been outstanding. And only because the learning from the classroom experience of the teachers, understanding how learners learn and then applying, because student learners, adult learners, they're exactly the same, right? They need the same activities. They need the same ownership. They want to be empowered. They want to be heard. So really the trainers are really the mentors in these workshops. So I would say in terms of looking at the glass half full, how I've changed the way I lead now, it's really um, no longer, you know, you don't have to be in person. I mean, my job, you know, I oversee 7,000 teachers professional development. I've only been to a few schools, I must say, but because of now this new way of working, I feel that I'm so connected with every single school. So that's another opportunity. Before you feel like you have to fly in, you got to only meet the heads, you talk to maybe three teachers. Now you can host webinars for a thousand people. So I must say, those are the things that I saw were positive coming out from the pandemic now. And there's a new way of working for us. Yeah, so I mean, again, agree with everything that's been said. I'm, I'm going to try and keep it very short, but I'll, I'll top and tail with um, a couple of quotes. I think the first one is definitely unattributed, but one thing that I think school leaders have found is that we, we've been a lot of the time building the plane as we were flying it. And um, that's been a, you know, a little bit of a change and uh, maybe at times a, a bit of a culture shock for staff in schools where they naturally look to the senior leaders to have the answers. And you know, many, many times I've just been shrugging my shoulders saying, I don't have those answers for you yet. And um, I think what that's, that's forced us to do uh, an awful lot more is, um, is, uh, is delegate and appreciate that things can be delegated at reasonably short notice and we can get a very good job done given the circumstances. And I think through that additional delegation, um, staff have, have found really empowered to make decisions themselves about where to go and what to do. And just to, to tail it with another quote, I think what I found is that we're really heading towards what, what Mary Myatt in the, in the UK has been saying for quite a while about schools. And that's, we need to be pursuing um, you know, this, this disciplined pursuit of less um, so that we need to be making you know, very um, uh, rational and very um, cool-headed decisions about what's important to us as a school and what we want to turn our atten attention and uh, energies to. Uh, and so, for instance, one of the things that has really been thrown out of the window in the schools that I've, I was previously working at and, and my current school is the need for weekly meetings, um, which was a, you know, a, a, just a, 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 a tried, tested stock uh, part of the the school year, your weekly meetings, and it was Tuesday night was this meeting, and Wednesday night was this meeting, it's been thrown out of the window because what we've realized is that more regular informal check-ins in the classrooms or corridors will absolutely suffice. Um, and again, that's that disciplined pursuit of less, that we're delegating more, trusting more, and 
the teachers are, uh, are pursuing the things that they consider to be most important. And I think that's just been a fantastic change that's come out of the pandemic. Brilliant. Um, yeah, and, and sort of looking at more about sort of a coaching culture within schools, um, what's the value and wider benefits of instilling this sort of coaching culture um, in a school or institution? Um, and, and the next part of my question is, how can, how can teachers and staff advocate for this too? If it's not necessarily something that the school does, how can they sort of, um, sort of invoke that sort of thinking in their school? Who'd like to take that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to start, and I think maybe the, the other three will add a little bit more experience and a little bit more, more gravitas, but we find ourselves very much at the beginning of this process because the school I've joined does, does not have instructional coaching in place as a mechanism for teacher development, and, and I've made very clear from the start that I think this is exactly where we should be going because... Um, instructional coaching really does satisfy an awful lot of what good professional development is supposed to be about. Uh, it's iterative, it's sustained, um, it can be contextualized, it can be personalized to, to the teacher. So it does an awful lot of those things. But I think the wider benefits are that you actually start creating a culture of trust and openness and transparency where teachers feel that they can talk about their areas for development as well as their strengths. They're not constantly trying to prove, but the focus has turned to improving. And I think that that's just a, a really um, positive culture change that you'll see, in my view, through instructional coaching. And already, though we haven't rolled it out across the board yet, the, the building blocks of instructional coaching, the, the, the peer lesson drop-ins, the feedback, the follow-up conversations, all of those are really leading to a lot of staff coming to me saying, you know, I was a bit skeptical, but I'm really enjoying the fact that we're starting to have conversations about where I want to develop. Um, and I'm doing that in, in sharp, short, focused conversations with my peers, rather than feeling that you know, I'm looking over my shoulder waiting for the next lesson rating. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that those wider benefits of instructional coaching are, are definitely cultural. Indigit, what about yourself? Sorry, I was struggling to unmute. Uh, just, just to build on what Dan said, I would say in my experience that most organisations are less than the sum of their parts. Uh, and by what I mean by that is in terms of the talent the expertise that exists within organizations, whether it be a school, a company, or, or wherever. And I think creating a coaching culture is one way to surface a lot of that hidden capital, that excellence, that expertise, to create that culture of collaboration and make the organization more than the sum of its parts. So in, in everywhere I, I've worked, um, I've tried to instigate that culture. and in response to your question sometimes not that's not the the direction of travel in the organization in which you're working but you can still create that culture at whichever level you are working at whether it's in your classroom with peers or within your department or within your team or in a larger within the organization it's something you, you can you can do uh, and i think there's a difference between creating a coaching culture 
and creating coaches. And I think sometimes people get caught up on the whole notion of needing to be a coach, um, but you can still create and instigate a really effective coaching culture without having the qualifications, without having the, uh, the expert coaches. I also think there's a real role for them as well, but you can do it without it in terms of doing that in your team or in your place of work. It is true, right? An organization needs to have definitions, a language for what kind of coaching, because this instructional coaching, Diane Sweeney type of coaching, or is it cognitive coaching, which is thinking collaborative, adaptive school types of coaching. For me, I thought might be today might be helpful to share personal experience being coach and being mentor throughout my entire career. And now in turn, I'm paying it forward by coaching and mentoring other leaders as well as teachers. So one of the things that I found very uh, powerful in terms of having a coaching culture was that I always feel empowered. I feel that I have the resources and I know what it is that I need to improve and it was up to me to get better at my own practice. So that was powerful. So I'm taking ownership. So I think the coaching culture, one of the values and the wider benefit is that your teachers can be more motivated because they have ownership. And also when you have a coaching culture in schools, relationships are stronger, collegial relationships, because there's this certain trust, because you can't have a coaching culture, as mentioned earlier by Dan, if there's no trust. So a foundation of trust, the positive relationships in the school allow for that vulnerability that you need for professional learning. And as you know, you know, if there is professional learning, then it's linked to improvement in student learning. So in itself already is a high value and benefit in schools. Um, personally, you know, I always felt heard and listen when I'm being coached or mentored because it was never being told what I need to do, what I need to change necessarily. It was always about, let me clarify, let me ask a few questions. So I understand because you matter. So because of that, I do think it's really powerful to have a coaching culture in schools. Now, having said that, it's not easy because if you have clumsy coaches or coaches that can't do, it can be really annoying. So it's a huge challenge. It's actually a whole school effort. And it's interesting as an organization for ISP, we're multiple schools, just like Indigit's uh, organization. It's, it's something that we aspire to right now and uh, is a big challenge. I don't doubt that, uh, but with perseverance and resilience, <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, well, <laughs> as someone who runs a company that provides coaches to senior leaders in schools and does coach training. You're, <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, I've fairly strong views on this. Um, well, let's start the other way. Let's start the other way. So my perspective on this is coaching is building a coaching culture in school is brilliant and enormously powerful. Um, and it's not a silver bullet. Like it's not the solution to everything. Um, and sometimes there's a temptation, isn't there, to think, oh, we're going to get, we're going to build a coaching culture and it's going to kind of sort everything out. It isn't. Um, but done well um, and in a meaningful and intentional way, it, it can be enormously beneficial in, in all the ways that the other panelists have, have described. And I'm not, I'm not going to go back through the advantages because I think we've covered them nicely. Um, to, to address the, the question about how do you, how do you get it going? Um, 
in some ways it doesn't matter and, and and what i mean by that is that some schools choose to say our senior leadership team are you know it's led from the top and the senior leadership team say we all want to be coached and we want to get external coaches that's you know one model others are it's one department and they say actually we want to learn how to coach each other and that might be more and i think marianne's point about defining what you mean by coaching and how it's different to mentoring and there's that's really important you're clear about that but you might decide in one department you want to start building a coaching culture and you start to develop the skills of one department and then that in turn um you know evolves um however it works i mean the beauty of coaching is is you get this ripple effect so you get this ripple effect in terms of wherever you put it in the school it then tends to start to move to other parts of the school so lots of examples where one department started and then by year three everyone in the school is receiving some sort of coaching in some way um, or the other way around, you know, it starts with senior leaders saying, actually, we really want some external input. And then before they know it, they want the rest of their teams to experience that. So there's a kind of ripple, practical ripple, but there's also a kind of a whole range of byproducts that come as a result. So, you know, if you think you're putting into the middle of your school spaces for people to have what we call generative conversations um, that are intentional and that are all about um, the client, as we call it, the coachee. If you're if you're thinking think about what that might do if you're creating those generative spaces for those conversations to take place and whether the focus is on what they're doing with their eyfs class or whether the focus is on what they're doing in their next role or how they're managing their middle leaders it doesn't matter what the focus is um sorry it really matters what the focus is but you, my point is you can put the focus wherever you need to be you then get these ripples because in doing so you get trust trust is built by training to coach or trust is built by by, by having a coaching culture. Um, you then get more learning. People, you know, it's such a personalized form of professional development. That you almost can't fail but to improve people's personalized learning, which is very different to everyone go off and do a course. Um, so I always say if you get you get learn, you get learning, you get um trust and well-being, and then you get you you very rarely, very often get these really st much stronger sense of community. Um, because again, you are you are creating opportunities for people to speak about what matters for them um which if you were looking at which is exactly what you'd want to be doing in a classroom and again teachers are regularly creating lovely coaching conversations in classrooms um, between kids they might not call it that but that's that's how we know you build a really strong classroom um so so there might not be a very clear mandate for it there might not be a very obvious strategic direction for it in your school at the moment but if you can just start by saying actually as a group of three or four why not we why don't we start just learning some basic coaching skills and finding a group of kind of um, of, of, of go-getters that want to do it, it the, the, then then you won't you won't be disappointed. It can only bring value in my experience. Brilliant, really really interesting. Um, and unfortunately, we're really fast running out of time. Uh, we've got about just a few minutes um, just to, to to answer a couple of questions that have come in. Um, we probably won't be able to get to all of them, but um, yeah, interesting question here. Um, Anyway, open to anyone, really. What, what do you think is the bigger jump um, from teacher to middle leader or from middle leader to, to senior leader? Who, who might like to take that? I would say, I don't know if it's a bigger jump. It might be a different role a little bit. Um, I would think that if I have to answer again, you know, there are many factors. I don't like to pin and be quoted on, but I think the experience is very different from a middle leader to probably a senior leader. 
only because then there is the management side of things, you know, and then you have to use your COVID's quadrant. And as a senior leader, you look at a lot of urgent and important stuff that you have to do because safety is important, you know, whereas the middle leadership from teacher to middle leaders, you're still teaching, you're only having some release time. So the gap is not as wide as I would say, maybe from a middle leader to a senior leader. I don't know, maybe Dan or Indigit or Matt can uh, give a different uh, perspective on that. Uh, for me, I just think it's a really difficult question to answer because it depends yes. so much on, on the individual. Yeah, there are some individuals which just step seamlessly into leadership and you know, learn as they go. There are others which really struggle with it. So I think it, it depends so much on the individual and their perspective, how they see the world. Um, so I, I don't think there's an answer or an easy answer to this question. I hope that wasn't a cop out. <laughs> Not at all. Any, any other thoughts uh, from you guys? Well, um move on to one last question, uh, if not. Yeah, I know I'm definitely in the it depends category on this one. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm just going to stick my neck out just to play devil's advocate, senior <laughs> leadership. I'm just, I'm just going to say the jump to senior leadership. And, and I would say the simple reason being, um, as Marion says, when you're a middle leader, you're still really focused on a lot of those teaching and learning orientated um, aspects, which which it's, you know, you're, you're learning the management piece and the accountability piece, but it's still very much in your core skill set. When you move to senior leadership, you start to get a lot of things thrown at you, which maybe you haven't experienced before. And I think an all, awful lot of the time, the, um, the, the days are, are taken up with parent meetings, stakeholder meetings, staff meetings, um, and then you get to the end of the day and look at your list of things to do that you wrote the previous day and it hasn't changed. Um, and I would say that really just the, the sheer variety of things that you have to do uh, and the fact that time management becomes an absolute priority as a, a senior leader, I, I would just play devil's advocate and say that's probably the jump that is most challenging. But a good school will have built into their succession planning training for those middle leaders so that they're ready for it. Um, and, and if you're a middle leader on, on this call and you don't feel you're getting that from your school, then I don't see any problem with going and politely talking with those senior leaders about how you can be seconded, take some experience from them, maybe shadow them a little bit so that you feel better prepared for that jump. Brilliant. Any, any final thoughts? So unfortunately we have... Uh, run out of time. Um, any, anything else that anyone would like to, to mention? Or Well, I just want to say, you know, have a growth, mind, a growth mindset. Those of you who want or interested in leadership, it's skill. You can practice and get better at it. You know, it's not, you're not born with it. It's not something, you know, you, you're just born to lead. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from your challenges. Keep at it if that's something that you want to do. If it's not for you, there's nothing like we're in teaching. We don't all have to be leaders in schools. We do our parts. That's my parting words. <laughs> Great way to Brilliant. finish it. Fantastic. And with that, I think we will finish up there. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for everyone on the call. Um, Matt, Marianne, Indigit, Dan, absolutely brilliant. Um, and yeah, maybe look forward to, to part two coming uh, at some point. But um, yeah, thank you for your time. Um, and just a very quick last message to say that we'll soon be launching the MVP um, for the ISN site, which is uh, super exciting. 
Um, and we'll send a link around to everyone on the call, all the attendees, as to how you can sign up and, and, and start playing around the platform uh, in, in due course over the next few weeks. So yeah, thank you once again to everyone.